actually has more popular support today than when Roe v. Wade was decided. If that right can be mutilated now, precedent and public opinion be damned, then no rights are secure from reactionary assault. For right-wing sharks, the editorial continues, getting rid of Roe is blood in the water. The New York Times estimates that more than 20 states are expected to ban or substantially restrict abortion if the Supreme Court permits it. However, some states, like Colorado, are going in the opposite direction, passing legislation legalizing the right to an abortion. To talk about these issues is Jennifer Hendricks. She's professor of law and co-director of the Juvenile and Family Law Program at the University of Colorado. She's the author of the essay, Abortion Rights and the Supreme Court, A Tale of Three Wedges. She spoke at the University of Colorado in Boulder on February 24th. Everyone here likely knows that last spring, the Supreme Court granted cert in a case designed as a vehicle for overruling Roe versus Wade. That case is called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. The oral argument in December confirmed the likely outcome with some lingering questions over how explicit the court will be in the overruling and what other implications the, the decision might have. My plan here is to take a look back at abortion law over the last 50 years to get a sense of where it has left us as we stand on the threshold of this new era. I'll offer a description of the arc of the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence in terms of what I've called three wedges, wedges that pry the pregnant woman apart from first, her fetus, second, her doctor, and third, her community. The first two wedges, separating the woman from her fetus and her doctor, have each taken a turn as the primary justification for restrictions on abortion rights in the law. Roe itself founded abortion rights on the first wedge as a theory for restricting them. The concept of a state interest in the fetus as an entity distinct from the pregnant woman. As public opinion shifted in favor of women seeking abortions, the Casey versus Planned Parenthood decision out of Pennsylvania in 1992 shifted to a new rationale for restrictions, distrust of the abortion provider from whom the woman needed to be protected. That's the second one. Most recently, at least one justice has taken an interest in an argument against abortion rights that puts a wedge between the pregnant woman and her community by accusing black women who have abortions of participating in eugenics and genocide. This last wedge leaves us poised not just to overrule Roe, but to do so in a way that casts women who seek abortions as villains worthy of criminal punishment. The first wedge, though, is, is the foundational one when it comes to restrictions on abortion. It's the wedge between the woman and the fetus, 
based on the biomedical concept of maternal fetal conflict. The fundamental argument for restricting the right to abortion is the distinct and at times superior personhood of the fetus. In the beginning, in Roe versus Wade, there are two questions presented in that case because constitutional analysis of fundamental rights always has two steps. The first step is whether there's a fundamental right in the first place. Is um, the decision to have an abortion within a protected sphere of individual autonomy? Even at the time of Roe, that should have been an easy question. The most widely recognized category of rights protected under the 14th Amendment are rights having to do with the family, and the quintessential family rights are parental rights. The oldest ones are the right to make decisions about your child's upbringing, what schools they'll go to, what religion they'll be raised in, the right to have custody of your children. Parental rights plus the right to marry are the core of family rights protected by the Constitution. The other most widely recognized and well-established category of rights protected under the 14th Amendment are rights to bodily integrity. At the time of Roe, it had already been two decades since the Supreme Court adopted the shocks the conscience test to hold that it was an unconstitutional violation of bodily integrity to pump someone's stomach without his consent. That's an intrusion on the body that frankly pales in comparison to forced childbirth. So the right to abortion, along with contraception that it's based on, fits comfortably at the intersection of these sort of family rights and the right to bodily integrity. So it should have been an easy case to find that it was protected. The more difficult question is the second one. The second question in row was when that right gives way to regulation. A woman might have all kinds of fundamental rights, but if the state has a compelling interest in restricting them, then it can. That's true for speech, privacy, religion, right to bear arms. All our rights have boundaries. So the real question in Roe was whether the state had a compelling interest that warranted restricting the woman's rights over her body and her reproduction. The answer that the Roe court gave was yes. Once the fetus is viable, the state can compel childbirth. Why does the state interest justify such a significant intrusion on the woman's body? The Roe court cited two precedents. The first was Jacobson versus Massachusetts. That's a case that nobody ever really talked about much until about a year ago when it started looming rather large because Jacobson is the case that held that the state has the power to require people to be vaccinated against smallpox. The need to protect others outweighed the minimal intrusion. But Jacobson doesn't provide a ton of support for state-compelled childbirth. The burden on the woman prevented from having an abortion is much greater than the burden on someone required to take a vaccine. And the state's interest in preventing the spread of contagious disease had a long and widely accepted history, unlike the interest in potential life, which was newly formulated in Roe itself. 
So the second precedent that the Supreme Court leaned on in Roe was more to the point because it dealt with the state's power to regulate reproduction by significantly intruding on someone's body. For that principle, the Roe Court cited Buck versus Bell. Some of you have not quite encountered Buck versus Bell, but for those of you who have, you may remember it as the three generations of imbeciles are enough case. That was Justice Holmes's takeaway quote about why the state of Virginia could forcibly sterilize Carrie Buck when it deemed her unfit to reproduce. Now, it turns out that the proof that Carrie Buck was an imbecile and thus unfit to reproduce was a family history of reproducing outside of wedlock. Carrie Buck herself was a perfectly sound mind, but she was the daughter of an unwed mother, and she herself had become an unwed mother at a, at a young age. So three generations of imbeciles enough was more like three generations of out-of-wedlock births is enough, although the youngest one hadn't had a chance yet. Either way, that was the main precedent in Roe for the state's power to restrict abortion, the same power that lets the state sterilize Carrie Buck because it didn't want any potential lives that might come from her, also allows the state to force other women to childbirth if it wants the potential lives in them. This state interest in potential life has come to define abortion jurisprudence, as well as the political debate over when life begins. Even though Roe itself formally rejected the argument that the fetus was a person for purposes of the 14th Amendment, it put the spotlight on the state's interest in the fetus as its own entity, and that debate continues in many areas of law. State legislatures produce a steady stream of personhood bills that drag abortion politics into fertility treatment, domestic violence against pregnant women, uh, and even child abuse prosecution, prosecutions of women who do things like fall downstairs or attempt suicide or get into car accidents while being pregnant. With the overruling of Roe, the principle of fetal personhood is set to find more traction, not just as a reason to restrict abortion, but in the criminalization of pregnancy more broadly. The rhetorical severing of the pregnant woman from her fetus, driving that wedge, is the foundation for forcing women through pregnancy and birth and holding them accountable for the product. But there were a couple of decades there when that kind of argument was in retreat, at least when it came to abortion. Public opinion sympathized with women seeking abortions, and so restrictions on abortion had to be justified um, in a different way um, and needed sort of a different target of regulation. And the target that emerged was doctors. During this period, anti-abortion laws cast women as the victims of abortion and you know, anti-abortion legislatures as women's protectors. So that's the second wedge, the wedge between women and their doctors. In 1992, most people expected the Supreme Court to use the Casey versus Planned Parenthood case to overrule Roe. Instead, 
Casey formally reaffirmed Roe, kind of in theory, while pretty much gutting it in practice. And it did two important things to kind of drive in that first wedge and also introduce the second. So first, Casey consolidated the ideology of the first wedge by upholding a very narrow health exception to abortion laws. Under Casey, when the state puts a restriction on abortion, whether it bans abortion after viability or before viability, it might put on all kinds of other regulations. Whenever it does that, there has to be an exception if the woman's life or health is at stake. But the exception is very narrow. What they upheld in Casey was a health exception that applied only if abortion was necessary to prevent death or serious risk of substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function. That is not a right to health. It's a right to survive the pregnancy with your organs mostly functioning. Uh, but that's what I meant when I said the case law at times treats the fetus's personhood as superior to the pregnant woman's. The state can compel her to take real risks and sacrifice substantial portions of her health to vindicate the state's claim of interest in her pregnancy with only this very, very narrow health exception in place. The second thing that Casey did is that Casey lowered the standard for restrictions on abortion from strict scrutiny to undue burden. The undue burden standard is supposed to mean that the state cannot restrict abortion in a way that has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. You can't have the purpose or the effect of putting a substantial obstacle in the path. And that is most of what we have been litigating about ever since Casey. What burdens are undue in that sense? There are two main types of burdens that states tend to enact. The first are generally referred to on the pro-choice side as TRAPS. That's an acronym. It stands for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Provider. A trap is a nitpicky rule that a state legislature passes in order to make it more difficult and expensive to run an abortion clinic and to get an abortion. It is one of the main ways that access to abortion has been decimated since Casey was decided. A sort of death by a thousand cuts harassment of abortion clinics, clinics regulating how wide the hallways have to be, the height of the door thresholds, the hour that the doctor's working, what room the doctor's in, and things like that. And the federal courts pretty much rolled over to that kind of regulation. And doctrinally, they do that by focusing almost entirely on speculation about whether a particular restriction has a substantial enough effect on women being able to get abortions and completely ignoring the purpose prong of the undue burden test. So remember, it's supposed to be no rules that have the purpose or effect of putting a substantial obstacle in the way. The purpose question has been pretty much ignored in the 30 years since Casey. The purpose of a trap is usually pretty obvious in the legislative record. 
but courts have insisted on simply taking the word of the state's lawyer who shows up in court and says, oh, no, no, the purpose here is just to protect women. We're just regulating the medical facility. We think the doorways really need to be this shape and size in order for it to be safe to have a clinic here. Courts accept that rather than look at the actual evidence about the purpose of the law. So the litigation since Casey has been essentially mired in semantics over what is substantial, and the right to abortion has withered on the vine. One interesting thing about traps, of course, is that they target the right to abortion indirectly by targeting the provider rather than the woman's actual decision to have an abortion. Traps set up the abortion provider as the suspect character who's in need of regulation, so the state becomes the woman's protector. This is a real shift from Roe. Roe is infamous for its valorization of the doctor who is deciding whether to perform an abortion. If you go back and read Roe, you may be surprised by how much it reads as a doctor's rights opinion, not a women's rights opinion. In Roe, when the Supreme Court talked about the history of abortion, it talked about the opinions of ancient gynecologists and other learned men, not, say, the practices of midwives who have been tending to women's reproductive bodies longer than men have known where babies come from. The court wrote in Roe, the attending physician, in consultation with his patient, so she does get to consult, is free to determine without regulation by the state that in his medical judgment, the patient's pregnancy should be terminated. Going on in the first trimester of the abortion decision must be left to the medical judgment of the pregnant woman's attending physician. And in conclusion, this decision, Roe versus Wade, vindicates the right of the physician to administer medical treatment according to his professional judgment up until important state interests justify intervention. Casey, on the other hand, reads a lot more like a women's rights decision, at least in the passages that I think Justice O'Connor wrote. And it isn't a coincidence that the decision that made abortion a question of women's rights rather than doctors' rights is also the decision that gutted the right. By the time of Casey, we had justices, especially Justice Kennedy, who looked at the doctor and saw not a respected professional, but a sort of seedy abortionist who couldn't be trusted. So the price of saving Roe in Casey was that someone had to replace the doctor as the paternalistic overseer of the woman's decision, and that someone was the state. This new adversariness between the woman and the doctor in the legal imagination uh, becomes even more explicit in another kind of regulation where the state interferes directly with the decision-making process about whether to have an abortion at all. So sometimes the state interferes by giving some third party the right to participate in the decision, like with parental consent laws, which have mostly been upheld, husband consent laws, which have been struck down. But the states also insert themselves into the decision through what they call informed consent laws. In their most extreme forms, these are the laws that force women to have unnecessary ultrasounds and listen to anti-abortion propaganda before they are allowed 
to have an abortion, usually with a waiting period thrown in to make it as unpleasant and expensive as possible. In these situations, it's clear that what the state is protecting the woman from is the abortion itself. The state is not regulating the safety of a medical facility. It is not protecting women's autonomy through real informed consent that gives accurate information. It is instead trying to dissuade her from having an abortion because as the state knows better than she does, the abortion will be bad for her. These supposedly women protecting arguments for restricting abortion set up the abortion provider as the enemy, the person from whom the woman needs to be protected. That characterization is on the cusp of coming to fruition in an argument that a few members of the court have started to encourage parties to serve up in abortion cases, which is that abortion providers lack standing to challenge abortion bans because they have, quote, a blatant conflict of interest with their patients. The doctors and the clinics on this view are just, just in it for their money and are just raking in the cash, preying on women in the process. In any other context, this argument against standing would be dismissed out of hand and rightfully so. It is well established that a business providing a service can assert the constitutional rights of customers seeking access to that service. To make an exception for abortion is, doesn't make any sense unless you see the woman's decision to have an abortion as inherently suspect and wrong and therefore the abortion provider as a sort of evil coercive figure, which is how a majority of the Supreme Court now sees it. So if this standing argument succeeds, it will be a body blow to the usual litigation strategy for protecting abortion rights. If you take a look at a list of all of the Supreme Court cases on abortion since Roe, you will see that the vast majority, just looking at the names of the cases, you will see that the vast majority of them have been brought by abortion providers, mostly Planned Parenthood, but some others thrown in there too, only occasionally by individual women. So Roe itself was quite exceptional in that way. If the clinics and the doctors are denied standing, the funding for this litigation is going to have to change and individual women may have to step forward to be the plaintiffs, which is not a terribly attractive thing to have to do on this particular issue. On the other hand, I will confess, I see some silver lining for abortion rights when it comes to this particular wedge, because I'm not actually very happy about that list of cases and who has been running the litigation strategy ever since Roe, all brought by medical organizations rather than by individual women or women's political organizations. It's ironic that even as the rhetoric and the holdings of the abortion cases shifted from doctors' rights to women's rights, the doctors took over the litigation program, which in my view has actually done some harm to the pro-choice side. For example, uh, you may remember some years ago, there was a series of cases, including two from, that went to the Supreme Court, over a particular abortion procedure 
uh, it was a sort of vaguely defined dilation and extraction procedure that was colloquially, colloquially referred to as partial birth abortion. And the question was whether a state could ban that particular procedure for performing an abortion. That issue was litigated essentially as a fight between Justice Breyer and Justice Kennedy over whether the doctor or the legislature should be the one to decide what kind of abortion procedure a woman should have. So Justice Breyer thought the doctor should decide, and Justice Kennedy thought that the legislature should decide. So hopefully you have noticed that there's someone missing from that list of potential decision makers. Um, and it's my feeling that if she had been a party to the case, it's possible someone would have thought to consult her on that question. Uh, so the loss of third-party standing would require a strategic overhaul for the clinics and, and women's organizations wanting to challenge abortion bans, but perhaps control over the litigation would actually shift away from medical providers and more towards feminist activists. Or more likely, the standing issue is just going to be moot after the court decides Dobbs in June. So, won't matter. That brings us to the third wedge, which is the one between the woman and her community. This wedge manifests itself in what are called trait selection laws. These are laws that prohibit abortion for particular reasons. Most commonly, you see prohibitions on abortion for reasons of sex selection or because of genetic anomaly of the fetus. We know people have abortions for those reasons, probably very few for sex selection, but more for genetic anomalies, which are widely considered legitimate reasons for abortion among people in the habit of passing judgment on that. So trade selection laws represent a step away from the idea of the woman as the victim of abortion and move her back into the perpetrator role. With these laws, it's actually the doctor who becomes the sort of frontline enforcer who's supposed to ferret out the reason for the abortion and refuse to perform it. If it's, if it's an illegitimate reason. Trait selection laws also incorporate a kind of personhood argument. They cast the embryo or the fetus as the person it could become and make an implicit argument about discrimination against that sort of potential person. So part of the power of trait selection laws is that they appeal to a sort of left liberal concern about things like social justice, sex discrimination, disability discrimination, and how those relate to abortion, all of which are serious questions, uh, which they invite us to sort of conflate two aspects of it, right? What do I think are good reasons for abortion? And when should the state force women to give birth? Uh, trait selection laws tend to sort of bring those two questions together as if they were the same. A couple of years ago, uh, the Supreme Court's attention was briefly turned to a trait selection law that added one more prohibited trait um, to the list. In addition to laws in a few states prohibit abortion because of the fetus's race. One of those states was Indiana, 
its trait selection law was struck down by the Seventh Circuit, and the Supreme Court ultimately denied review. But Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence highlighting the question of race selection in abortion as one the court must soon face. So we're used to hearing traits like race, sex, disability, all kind of run together like that uh, in discrimination laws, all these different kinds of suspect classifications. But pause and notice what's a little bit odd in this context. What is this scenario that the Indiana legislature is imagining in which a woman illegitimately considers race as a factor in deciding to have an abortion? One scenario you might imagine is a woman decides to abort because she got pregnant with a man of a different race and she wants to hide the fact of the sexual liaison. In maybe a more modern version of that, uh, there was a recent case out of Chicago, uh, so also in the Seventh Circuit, in which a white lesbian couple sued a fertility clinic for giving them the wrong sperm. Specifically, they had selected a white sperm donor, but were given sperm from a black donor. Now, presumably, race was not the only difference between the man they had selected uh, and the man whose sperm they were given. But when they sued, their claims about damages didn't have, have anything to do with any of those other differences. All of the claims of damages and their claim to have been, their claim to have been harmed by this mistake flowed from the racial aspect of the error. Um, basically, that they and their daughter would now have to contend with racism in their daily lives rather than being concerned about any of the other characteristics that may have come from the sperm donor. So you could imagine that if that mix-up of the vials had been discovered earlier, the woman who was pregnant might have decided to have an abortion and try again. And under Indiana's trait selection law, that abortion would presumably have been illegal. This unusual case, however, is not what trait selection laws are about. Including race in trait selection laws is a way of invoking a narrative about abortion as a kind of eugenics, and specifically about abortion as black genocide. What that means is that these laws are aimed at black women, not in a very practical way, but the point is to accuse black women of participating in eugenics and genocide against the black community for having abortions. This is a narrative that has been around for a while. It has a history in the anti-abortion movement, but also in some of the more male-oriented civil rights groups. So, for example, some of the Black Panthers at one time uh, took the position that white society, by allowing Black women to have abortions, was targeting and trying to eliminate the Black community. This is the argument that Justice Thomas has invited states to make in the future as a justification for overturning Roe and banning abortion. You're listening to Jennifer Hendricks on Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. 
or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. This is another argument that picks up on arguments usually associated with the feminist left, in this case, particularly from the reproductive justice movement. Reproductive justice is a concept that includes reproductive rights as lawyers traditionally think of them, meaning abortion and contraception, but also a much broader struggle against reproductive oppression. It comes out of the experience and activism of Black women who, among many other concerns, have argued that the large white-dominated feminist organizations put too much emphasis on abortion and not enough on other forms of reproductive oppression, forced sterilization, environmental racism that leads to infertility, poverty, and state-sponsored violence that interfere with the ability to raise children with dignity, and family separation policies aimed at children of color, whether through the foster system, immigration, detention, or otherwise. All of those aspects of reproductive justice and reproductive oppression contribute to why Black women have a disproportionately high number of abortions. There's also no question that the movements for contraception and abortion rights were filled with racism. Indeed, not long ago, the head of Planned Parenthood published an opinion piece in the New York Times titled, We're Done Making Excuses for Our Founder. But what Justice Thomas and others who put this argument out there do is put the blame not on Margaret Sanger and her ilk, but on the Black woman seeking the abortion, the woman who is coping with all of that oppression and doing the best she can with it, right? Doing the best she can for herself and her family. They're blaming her and calling her the eugenicist. So where is that argument going? It doesn't really have much to do with trait selection laws. They're more of a rhetorical device for attacking Roe as tainted by eugenics so that it can be overruled as the product of a racist program, a modern-day Dred Scott. And to be clear, I should say, the end game here is not just to overrule Roe in the sense many people kind of assume when we talk about it, where abortion gets sent back to the states. Abortion has already been sent back to the states. Casey did that. All right, so Casey already sent abortion back to the states. The trajectory of the argument is not just to overrule Roe, but to establish a right to life for the fetus, superior to the rights of the pregnant woman, not through a constitutional amendment, but through a Supreme Court decision so that the Supreme Court would rule not just that abortion is unprotected, but that it is constitutionally prohibited. Whether that happens and what abortion rights look like in the meantime depends on a lot of factors, some of which will be revealed by the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs this spring. One loose end is that the Republicans on the Supreme Court are uniform in their hostility to Roe, but not entirely uniform in the reasons for that hostility. One of the objections is not so much about abortion itself as it is about this entire enterprise of protecting fundamental rights having to do with family and bodily integrity. 
because the 14th Amendment speaks generally of liberty, but not specifically about those rights. If that kind of objection prevails, then Roe will be the first domino that falls, but it will take with it the right to marriage, especially same-sex marriage, the right to use contraception, and other family and privacy rights. Another unknown is what exactly it will mean for abortion to go back to the states, to the extent that it hasn't already. That phrase implies that we're going to go back to how things were before Roe versus Wade. We're not. A lot of things are different, and here are a couple of them. One big difference is the availability of medication abortion. For some initial period after Dobbs, we're going to have basically a more extreme version of what we have today, which is a patchwork of some states where the right to abortion is protected and others where it is not. The not is just going to get like more intense. Colorado is in an interesting position with respect to that patchwork because we have strong legal support for abortion in the state, but we are geographically isolated in that view, which means that for many women in the region, Colorado is a destination for getting abortion-related health care, even if it means traveling hundreds of miles. So that role is likely to be intensified. But one thing that could turn down the pressure a little bit on that front is medication abortion. Medication abortion is not an option in every case, of course, but when it is, it can be sent through the mail and it can be supervised long distance. At least it can be sent through the mail and supervised long distance, medically speaking. Legally speaking, of course, the states that ban abortion will obviously include bans on medication abortions, as Texas has already done. Uh, and Texas has already prohibited sending abortion medications through the mails in the state of Texas. But before Roe, there were underground networks of women who taught each other how to manage their own abortions at home as safely as possible. And similar networks are already forming in the U.S. right now. And hopefully, those efforts will be safer and more successful in saving women's lives because of medication abortion. A second big difference between now and the time before Roe is that the legal and political landscape around abortion is dramatically different now. And sending it back to the states is not going to be the end of that. That means that the patchwork of legality and restriction is going to be unstable. For an initial period, authority will be in the hands of the states, so regulation will be subject to state-level politics, but Congress and the courts will have more chances to intervene as well. A Congress or a president who was supportive of the right to abortion could do many things to protect it. One example is the Women's Health Protection Act, which has passed the House but isn't going to pass the Senate. And even if it did, there's a good chance the Supreme Court would strike it down. But there are other things the federal government could do. For example, I mentioned that Texas has prohibited sending abortion drugs through the mails. But last I checked, the U.S. mails were under the jurisdiction of the president, not Governor Abbott. Uh, so there are a lot of avenues through which the federal government could act in favor of abortion and also a, Cong a Congress or a president that was against abortion rights could similarly 
do a lot of things to restrict it, including a nationwide ban, which I think the Supreme Court would uphold, or you know, continuing progress with the membership of the Supreme Court could lead to the Supreme Court um, issuing a ban on its own. Okay, anybody? So first question is, what do you make of the Texas law that gives a private right to law enforcement? There have been two major discussions, I guess, about the recent Texas laws uh, banning abortion. The first is just that they're banning abortion. Um, The second is the procedural mechanism through which they have done so. The strategy was to try to make it difficult for the courts to strike down the ban by making it impossible to find a defendant who you could sue to enjoin the law. And I guess I have two things to say about that. One is that the entire problem is, is, was created by the Supreme Court in the 19th century when it interpreted the 11th Amendment to provide sovereign immunity to the states. That's the source of the problem. And since this is a little off topic, I will just say briefly that um, the concept of sovereign immunity has no place in a democracy. Uh, and and that, so we get rid of that, you get rid of most of the problem. So that's my one thought. My second thought about it is that people have been coming up with all kinds of hypos, like, oh, what if we did the same for guns? And what if we did, you know, this kind of thing? Um, And, you know, there are some rights that we leave to private enforcement and others that we have enforced by the state. Um, Push comes to shove. The entire law was like a thumbing your nose at Supreme Court precedent. And the Supreme Court has demonstrated over history that it's perfectly capable of dealing with that kind of flouting of the Constitution when it wants to. Um, And the only reason that the Texas laws are still in effect is that the Supreme Court doesn't want to do anything about it. All right. What effect may this situation have on women's health care more broadly beyond abortion? So many, many effects. How they play out, I think, depends somewhat on how the Dobbs decision is written. Dobbs may not officially announce that they're overruling Roe, right? They might say abortion is still legal for the first few weeks or something like that. Whatever it does, it will ratify a much greater degree of deference to the state's claimed interest in women's reproductive capacity. The most serious place where we see that and have been seeing it for decades is in this area of criminalization of pregnancy, where women can be prosecuted for sort of, you know, as I said, falling down the stairs while pregnant if a prosecutor believes they should have been more careful when they were pregnant. Um, So that's the biggest area. Um, There are also a lot of situations in which the more criminalized abortion is, the more you chill doctors' ability to deal with pregnancy-related emergencies. And you hear reports about this in the U.S. and in other countries in which, um, so for example, the Casey health exception that I talked about requires that the threat to the women's health be immediate, which means that in there are a fair number of situations where a a doctor can diagnose, for example, an ectopic pregnancy that we know is going to 
end up in abortion or miscarriage. And the longer you wait, the greater the danger to the pregnant woman. Um, but under a lot of restrictive abortion regimes, doctors are compelled to wait until the crisis hits, right? Or sometimes compelled to wait, you know, even, you know, if the fetus doesn't have, to, doesn't have a brain, but they have to wait until it's officially dead before they can induce abortion, which greatly increases, it, you know, the risk of infection and all kinds of things. So the management of pregnancy in general, because when there's a prosecutor looking over your shoulder, looking for, you know, suspicious evidence of someone wanting to abort, um, pregnancy care becomes quite a bit more complicated. What do you think about the argument that abortion bans violate religious freedom? So religious accommodation is a, is a tricky kind of question, right? I do think, I mean, it's, it's clear that, that people's views on abortion in the United States are highly, are strongly related to religion on both sides of the debate, um, very strongly on both sides. But I guess, I guess where I tend to fall back is that, um, is that the religious arguments shouldn't be needed um, to recognize um, the importance of the right. I think the most succinct statement of why there is a right to abortion, at least under our legal system that I've ever read, was from a philosopher named Marianne Warren, who said, in a liberal individualist society, there's only room for one legal person in each body. And in the case of pregnancy, the person needs to be the pregnant woman. I'm going to skip around a little bit. How much does public opinion influence what arguments are deemed acceptable or viable at a particular time? So the Supreme Court is responsive to public opinion, but with a long lag period. Okay, so the, the Supreme Court, well, to the extent that you consider the Senate democratic, which I will say I don't, more than a very small amount, but it's a little bit democratic. And the presidency is a little, is more, a little more democratic because um, the Electoral College is better than the Senate as from a democratic perspective. So to the extent that you consider those the democratic branches of the government, the Supreme Court is ultimately subject to democratic control. But they also, you know, are on there for a very, very long time and, so, and, and are protected from being removed. So there's a lag in the effect that public opinion can have on the Supreme Court. Um, and it's also, you know, the, the issues that are most relevant tend to change over time, you know, during the time that that lag takes place. So the justices that were put on the Supreme Court in order to uphold the New Deal, right, uh, were put there because they were deferential to the government, right, and were willing to let the government act. And so you got justices like Justice Holmes, who, although, like, I quoted the part that shows him to be, like, kind of a jerk and a bigot, um, but part of the reason, like, that, that posture of deference to the democratic government is part of why we got Buck versus Bell, because they weren't going to question what the elected representatives were going to do. Um, so, so it's a dance. Um, they are responsive, I, but not in any... Um, I mean, the fact that there's a sort of majority support for abortion rights in the country right now is not going to mean anything to the justices that are there now. 
I think you said it's conceivable the Supreme Court could issue a decision that would ban abortion. Yes. What would the legal basis of such a decision be? Oh, that's easy. So, so not in Dobbs. They're not going to do that in Dobbs. Um, it did come up in the oral argument that in a sort of Overton window kind of way, that, oh, on the one hand, this was Justice Kavanaugh raised it. He said, well, on the one hand, we could hold that abortion is a protected right. On the other hand, we could hold that abortion is unconstitutional and prohibited. And so, you know, sending it back to the states is a compromise, right? That's the reasonable position. So uh, the easiest argument for, I think, for the Supreme Court to adopt to ban abortion itself is an equal protection argument. So you just say that, you know, fetuses, the unborn children are a suspect class because they lack political power under a John Eli kind of approach. They, you know, they can't vote. And their exclusion from homicide laws is therefore a violation of equal protection. So you strike it down. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Follow up. Perfect segue to my follow up. I'm always told that Justice Ginsburg had an equal protection rationale for abortion rights, but I don't know what it is. Can you explain it briefly? Yeah, so there's a very strong intuition in, in both sort of pro-choice and pro-life sides that abortion has something to do with sex equality. That's an intuition that has sort of, that's been around for 150 years since the first abortion bans were enacted. Um, they were, they were, the first abortion bans were very much about getting rebellious wives under control so that they would do their duty to their husbands, to the race, because it was white women, to manifest destiny, all of that. Um, so there has long been an, an, an intuition that women taking control of their reproduction is rebellious in an inappropriate way. Um, it is a hard argument to make in terms of the equal protection doctrine that we have, because the Supreme Court has, in other cases, looked at state regulation of pregnancy, and, so, and when women have said, I'm being discriminated against on the basis of pregnancy, the Supreme Court said, well, no, you're not. This is, they're not discriminating between women and men. They're distributing, discriminating between pregnant women and non-pregnant people. Um, so, like, what does pregnancy have to do with the, whether you're a man or a woman? And they're not, this is not because they've accepted any concept of gender fluidity or anything like that, right? Uh, not what they're saying there. So it's a very hard argument to articulate in terms of the sex discrimination doctrine that we have. But it would usually go something about, number one, like I talked about with the purpose of abortion restrictions, looking at the actual sort of purpose and articulated aims of abortion restrictions, especially when they were first enacted, and that they had to do with enforcing a role. And then the other kind of argument are those sort of comparative ones, right? Like, we'll force a woman, a woman to go through childbirth, but it's unconstitutional to pump someone's stomach. We can force you to go through childbirth but we would never dream of forcing even a parent to donate a kidney to a child. Right? So it's those kinds of comparisons that make out the equal protection argument. But it requires, it requires an abstraction because men aren't allowed to have abortions either when abortion is banned. All right, there's another in-person one. Okay, I'll randomly pick one more. If I, were to, if I, with no law degree but considerable drive, 
were to insert myself into a fight to protect a woman's right to choose, where would you recommend my time and energy would be most efficiently spent? That's a great question. In part, I would say there's so much need that whatever your talents suit you best for um, is what you could do. And the caveat about not being a lawyer, I'm not sure lawyers have much to offer that is unique to our skills at this particular point in time. So I mentioned that regionally, Colorado is this resource for women in other states. Um, They need people, they need help with um, transportation. They need places to stay. Most of all, they need money. The Cobalt Abortion Fund um, is local to Colorado and and helps women from Colorado and from the region. Um, So that's a place you can volunteer. You can write letters, you can, um, and when you, you know, when you write letters to politicians on any kind of issue, right, mostly you write when you're mad about what they're doing, write to, write to them when you like what they're doing too, right? Because someone, like someone in their office is keeping score, right, of how many comments come in on each side. Um, the ones who are doing stuff you like um, need to know that you're noticing and you're seeing that too. So, you know, the particular issue of abortion is, is part of a, a suite of gender-related and personal liberty-related rights. Keep an eye on Texas um, and whatever they're doing. um, Start paying attention to, right? So most recently in Texas, they're going after transgender kids. Keep showing up the people in your community who are taking care of each other on these issues. You were just listening to Jennifer Hendricks on Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court. She spoke at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Jennifer Hendricks is professor of law and co-director of the Juvenile and Family Law Program at the University of Colorado. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Chris Hedges, Angela Davis, Vandana Shiva, and Noam Chomsky. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Jennifer Hendricks on Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court, and for Rebecca Solnit's book of feminist essays entitled The Mother of All Questions, just call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to the Colorado Law Advancement Team and Tim Butler for recording the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.
Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. This is Cricket, Paulina, and Tula, and Al. From Calgary, Alberta, CGSW 90.9 FM, Girls Rock Camp. Where is my mind at? I 
ask of a soul to me Have you seen what I want you to